Psalm 28 of David. To you I call, O Lord, my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbours but harbour malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. It would help me if you could leave that page open so we can keep looking at those verses, that psalm, during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God to be at work among us through the preaching of his word. When the prophet Samuel was a boy serving in the temple, he heard God calling his name and he said to God, Speak, for your servant is listening. Father, we want to make Samuel's words our own this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. As I look at my first sentence, I realize this is an odd way to begin a sermon, but I think it will become clear quickly why I'm starting with this comment. A strange feature of garlic is that if two people eat a garlicky dish together, neither of them will be aware of the smell of garlic coming from the other person. It's true. But if just one of them eats a garlicky dish, then the other one will be aware, acutely aware, of that distinctive smell when they share an Uber after the meal. And it is like that with human beings and sin. When everyone is sinning in a certain way, that behavior seems normal. It doesn't seem wrong or wicked or evil. It's only when someone is committed to living to please God that they'll become unpleasantly aware of the sin around them. I had five years at an all-male boarding school. There was bullying and meanness on a daily basis, occasional extreme drunkenness, pornography, plenty of other sins. But we didn't consider ourselves to be wicked people living evil lives, we thought our behavior was normal and nothing to be ashamed of. We didn't smell the garlic because we'd all eaten garlicky dishes. But in Psalm 28, 
we find that David, the author of the psalm, is unpleasantly aware of wickedness. He sees the sinfulness of sin. Psalm 28 belongs with the two preceding psalms, 26 and 27. They form a kind of trio of psalms because there are lots of connecting words between them, connecting themes. And we see in those other two psalms in the trio, 26 and 27, that David is committed to living life God's way. That's how David is able to smell the garlicky odor of sin. It's because he pursues godly living and stands opposed to sinful dishes, if you see what I mean. David's attitude to sin was exemplary for his people back then, the people he led, and it is still exemplary for God's people today. We should be able to smell the garlicky odor of sin and we should react to it as David did. What we'll see from Psalm 28 is that God's people don't belong in the same category as the wicked. We love them. We long for them to be saved. We befriend them and share our lives with them. We don't go around judging them in order to puff ourselves up. We don't necessarily talk about their wrongdoing unless the situation calls for it. But even with all those qualifications, those important qualifications kept in mind, there's a true sense in which, like David, we should stand opposed to wicked people because of what Psalm 28 calls the evil work their hands have done. The world of Psalm 28 is a moral world, a world where the presence of evil matters enormously. It's a world where the presence of evil is rightly considered offensive by David, far more offensive than the smell of garlic in the back of an Uber. And even though Psalm 28 was written in a different period of salvation history to our own, we're still living in the same moral world today. David still sets an example for God's people as we make our way through this moral world. The psalm begins with David's problem. David's problem. He says in verse 1, To you I call, O Lord my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me, for if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Like those who have gone down to the pit. In the Old Testament, the pit is often another word for the grave. But sometimes the pit isn't just the grave, it's rock bottom in the grave, the lowest of the low, a kind of dungeon for the worst offenders. So David could be saying to God, don't let me die in my sins with the result that I go down to that pit. Or alternatively, he could be saying, don't let me die now in these circumstances because people would think of me like one of those people who have gone down into the pit. Or a final possibility, with verse 3 in view, do not drag me away with the wicked, is that David fears being taken captive by wicked people. If that's what David means, then when he talks about being like those who have gone down to the pit, he'd be saying that captivity among the wicked would make him like those worst offenders in the place of the dead. So 
there are three different ways of understanding the problem David is praying about. But don't worry if you've already forgotten the first one or the second one or all three, because they all have one thing in common. Whatever precisely David is praying about, it's clear that he does not want to blend in, morally speaking, with wicked people. He doesn't want to blend in morally with wicked people. Whether it's not wanting to go where they go in death, whether it's not wanting to die with a reputation for being like them, or whether it's not wanting to be dragged away among them in this life. Whatever the precise danger is, David does not want to be lumped in with the wicked so that he becomes like them. Sometimes David's psalms begin with information that tells us what exactly was going on in his life at the moment when the psalm was written. We're not given that kind of information in this psalm. The inscription at the top simply says, of David. So we can't know for sure. But one occasion that does fit the psalm rather well is the time when David went over to the Philistines to try to escape from King Saul. Saul was Israel's king before David, and for years he tried to murder David because he knew God had chosen David to be the next king instead of Saul's own son, Jonathan. So David went to the Philistines to find refuge among them. And the Philistines thought David had totally burned his bridges with Israel. They thought he'd given up on his own people. So when they went to war against Israel, one of the Philistine leaders, a man named Achish, calls on David and his men, his Israelite men, to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites, against God's people. In 1 Samuel 28, Achish says to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And in the next chapter of 1 Samuel, David and his men actually march with the Philistine army towards the Israelites to fight against them. The writer of 1 Samuel doesn't tell us what David was thinking at the time, but it was probably something like, how in the world do I get out of this fine mess? That's one episode in David's life that fits with the predicament he's in at the start of the psalm. You can see how in those circumstances he'd fear dying in his sins in unrepentance because it's not right to fight against God's people. You can also see how he'd fear dying with a ruined reputation. And you can see how he'd fear captivity of some kind among the Philistines. Verse 1, Lord, if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Verse 3, do not drag me away with the wicked. Now, it's worth noting that David prays with confidence. He's clearly deeply troubled about his situation, but he knows his God. And so he prays confidently. In verse 1, he refers to God as his rock, his strong, unchanging shelter from all storms. And in verse 2, David says, I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. That's a reference to the tabernacle's innermost room, God's dwelling place on earth. Every year on the Day of Atonement, Israel's high priest entered into that most holy place, carrying sacrificial blood to atone for Israel's sins. So when David lifts up his hands towards God's most holy place, 
He's not just appealing to God. He's appealing to God as an Israelite, relying on the power of sacrificial blood. Relying on the provision decreed by God through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. In another of David's Psalms, Psalm 20, David says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May he send you help from the sanctuary. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. David knew God's imperfect people can only approach him for help on the basis of blood shed in their place. Sin deserves death, but God decreed that his people could offer the blood of sacrificed animals instead of their own blood. On that basis, Israelites such as David himself could approach God with confident faith, seeking his help. Well, let's quickly take stock before we move on to the next section of the psalm. It looks to David as if his circumstances will in some way fold him in among the wicked. And he doesn't want that. That's David's problem. Let's now turn to David's protest, verses 3 through 5. David's protest. In this section of the psalm, David mounts a protest against being categorized with the wicked. He says to God in verse 3, Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil. And in verses 4 and 5, David reinforces that protest by acting as a kind of prosecuting lawyer against the wicked. He says to God the judge, Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. Since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. It's possible some of you find those verses hard to stomach. You might be thinking, what about love your enemies? We'll get to that in just a moment. But the headline here is that David really cannot stand wickedness. David can smell the garlic of wickedness, and he has a godly aversion to it. And he's not just talking about the kind of large-scale sins that any leader would oppose, such as murder or violent theft. No, the specific example of wickedness that he gives in verse 3 could be called small-scale wickedness. David singles out those people who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Picture a group of acquaintances all speaking very cordially to one another. It looks like a pleasant scene, a successful party, but in their hearts they have bad desires and intentions towards the people they're speaking with. David does not take a nothing-to-see-here view of that kind of scene. Instead, he pleads with God, don't drag me away with with these people. He wants nothing to do with wickedness. And in his view, even a, a pleasant conversationalist with nasty inner thoughts counts as wicked. But how do we square David's words in these verses with commands such as love your enemies? 
Well, love your enemies is in harmony with this psalm because it confirms that God's people do have enemies. It confirms this distinction we're seeing between God's people and the wicked. There's nothing in David's words that would prevent him from showing love to the people he's talking about. Looking at the end of verse 5, he will tear them down and never build them up again. It seems David has final judgment in view. So he's saying to God, when all is said and done, please treat the wicked like this. That wouldn't stop David showing kindness to wicked people along the way. And in fact, David shows remarkable kindness to his enemy king Saul right up until Saul's death. If you still find David's words in verses 4 and 5 hard to stomach, it is worth considering that whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we did earlier in this service, we are actually praying something similar to what David prays in verses 4 and 5. When we pray, your kingdom come, what are we praying? We're praying for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom in all its fullness. And Jesus cannot do that without judging, condemning, and punishing all those who stand opposed to him. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying a shortened, condensed version of verse 4. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. That's what will happen when King Jesus returns to establish his kingdom in all its fullness. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think you'll hear the similarity with what David says. Paul tells the Thessalonians, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's possible there's someone here today who's not trusting in Jesus for salvation. You haven't yet come to him for the rescue he offers. Psalm 28 verse 5 reveals the category you currently belong to in God's sight. David speaks in verse 5 of those who show no regard for the works of the Lord. That's another way of saying those who aren't trusting in God for salvation. The works of the Lord are his saving works. Everything he has lovingly done to provide us with the rescue we need to offer us that rescue. Those saving works reached their high point in the death and resurrection of God's son, Jesus. He died on the cross so that we could be completely forgiven and pardoned. As he died, he was punished in the place of everyone who trusts in him. We have nothing more to pay because sacrificial blood has been taken in to the most holy place, heaven's most holy place, and God the Father has accepted it. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, please start today. In the words of verse 5, you could start showing regard for God's works, his saving works. You could leave the wicked category, even today. It's a change of position with eternal consequences. Come on board. 
join in with those receiving the mercy of God through Jesus. It's time for us to move on to the third section of the psalm. We've grasped David's problem. We've heard his protest. And in the third section of the psalm, we hear David's praise. David's praise. To begin with, David concentrates on thanking God for his own personal deliverance. Let's look down to verses 6 and 7. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. It's easy to imagine David praising God like that when he got out of the scrape. We were thinking about earlier, the time when he and his men seemed obliged to go into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites. By the way, if you're wondering how David did get out of that scrape, at the last minute, some of the other Philistine leaders say to Achish, what are these Hebrews doing here? And they force Achish, who wants David and his men to stay, they force Achish to send them away. Once again, the writer of 1 Samuel doesn't tell us what was going on in David's thinking, but surely he was inwardly bouncing with praise as he and his men were sent away, just as he is in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 28. Psalm 28 could have ended there at verse 7. We wouldn't have noticed anything missing if it had ended there at the end of verse 7. But it doesn't end there. We've also got verses 8 and 9, and we should ask ourselves why those verses about God's people are in this psalm. If it's a psalm about David and his personal desire not to be categorized with the wicked, why does he bring God's people into it? The answer is that David is conscious of the ripple effects of his own life. From a young age, before the time he killed Goliath, David had been God's chosen king. God's prophet Samuel had anointed David as king, pouring oil on his head, and from then on David knew that he was the one who God wanted to rule Israel after King Saul. Keeping your distance from wickedness is important for every believer, but it's especially important for God's king not to blend in, morally speaking, with the wicked. David knows that if he's associated with goodness instead of wickedness, that will have ripple effects among the people. In verse 8, he says, The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for, we expect him to say, for them. But instead he says, for his anointed one. That's him, David. The point of verse 8 is that God has strengthened his people by saving good King David from the situation he was in at the start of the psalm. God strengthens his people by saving his anointed one. Verse 8 is like a preview of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, the Messiah, was great David's greater son. And when he died on the cross with criminals, either side of him, it looked as if he would be forever associated with wickedness. 
he was in a situation very similar to David's situation at the start of Psalm 28. It looked as if Jesus would be forever associated with the wicked, but God strengthened his people with eternal strength by saving Jesus from that situation. God saved Jesus from it through his resurrection, bringing him up from the grave. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus' death left his followers in utter despair, but on Resurrection Sunday, they were filled with strength. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Those two lines go together. That is what happened on Resurrection Sunday, just as it happened with David so many years before. Without Jesus, without his death and resurrection, it would be impossible for God to do those wonderful things in verse 9, saving us, blessing us, being our shepherd and carrying us forever. It's because God the Father is a fortress of salvation for his anointed one, first David, then Jesus, that we can come to God for all of those good things. And we'll remember Jesus and his work for us when we eat the bread representing his body and the wine representing his blood later in the service. How thankful we should be as we eat and drink the sacrament. But Psalm 28 does more than simply point us afresh to Jesus. As important as that is, it also teaches us as God's people that through the grace of God, we now belong to a different category from the wicked. And like David in verses 3, 4, and 5, we should stand opposed to the deeds of the wicked. As I said earlier, we love wicked people. We long for them to be saved. We befriend them and share our lives with them. We don't go around judging them. We don't necessarily talk about their wrongdoing unless the situation calls for it. And yet, Psalm 28 teaches us we live in a moral world where the presence of evil should be offensive to us. It's not just offensive in God's sight. It should also be offensive in our sight, as it was to David. And in order to smell that garlic, as it were, will need to avoid eating the garlicky dishes of wickedness. One of the challenges for discipleship in the 21st century is that we are getting so much moral input from dubious sources. Think about the shows we stream into our living rooms. Any of them uphold the difference between good and evil. It's good when a detective tracks down a killer. That's a good outcome. But there are plenty of shows that blur the lines between good and evil and even present evil as good. And those shows can be highly creative and funny and cool. They can change the way we see the world. Before we know it, wickedness has become normal. And we don't smell the garlic because we're eating it too. 
Social media is another 21st century source of moral input. It can subtly change your sense of right and wrong without you really being aware of that happening. Social media rarely rewards faithful Christian living because faithful Christian living often looks a bit dull. It's not dull. It's glorious to serve God and experience his strengthening power. It's glorious to know the shepherd who lovingly carries his sheep. But our social media and YouTube faithful Christian living doesn't usually get a lot of clicks. If we allow Facebook and TikTok and YouTube to fill our thinking with their latest posts and videos, we'll start valuing whatever's viral, whether it's morally good or morally bad. Wickedness will become normalized and we won't smell the garlic because we're eating it too. In the 21st century, Christians need God our shepherd to carry us away. Those words in verse 9, be their shepherd and carry them forever. We'll need God to carry us away from morally dubious online content. We'll need to pray, please carry me away from this, God. Help me to turn off my screen and turn to you for more of your loving leading and guidance through reading your word and praying to you. Sin can easily start to seem normal. David shows us what it looks like to resist the normalization of sin. He shows us what it looks like to resist blending in morally with wicked people. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we know from past experience how quickly sin and wickedness can start to seem normal. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to share David's outlook towards wickedness. Would we take our stand against it? Help us to be committed to living life your way. Would we learn your ways? Would you empower us to walk in them so that we know what is good and what is evil? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, Jesus, who saves us from our own guilt and qualifies us to live with him in holiness forever. Amen.